This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Alley. Our guest this week is Columbus, Texas farmer Bob Stallman, president of the American Farm Bureau Federation. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. NCIS provides the primary safety net for millions of acres of cropland and hundreds of commodities across the U.S., enabling farmers to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with American Farm Bureau President Bob Stallman next. America's farmers and ranchers are relying on crop insurance now more than ever before to provide individualized protection and to secure operating loans. Protecting more than 290 million acres of farmland and more than 130 commodities across the U.S., crop insurance is the primary safety net for many farmers, enabling them to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. Crop insurance, providing peace of mind now and for the next generation of agriculture. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Since January 2000, Texas farmer and rancher Bob Stallman has served as president of the American Farm Bureau. He's stepping down from that post at the group's national convention this month. Bob Stallman says he's pleased with congressional efforts on tax reform and granting TPA for the president. But he's quick to suggest that no trade deal can survive in Congress without a strong voice from rural America. The voice of agriculture will be absolutely critical in getting this passed through the Congress. I've always said that trade agreements are very difficult no matter how good they are. But the reality is is that a trade agreement going to the Congress without agriculture support will not pass. And that's why agriculture needs to be very supportive. We are in necessary condition. We may not be a sufficient condition at the end. I hope we are. But the role that agriculture has to play in doing this is just tremendous. In 2015, there were proposed cuts to crop insurance. It did not come to pass. Is that the end of the battle? No, it is not the end of the battle. That was another skirmish, you know, that we have fought. And it was really a surprise attack, to be perfectly honest. You know, when you have a provision like that stuck in a major piece of legislation where the the ranking members, the ranking and chairs of the ag committees, committees of jurisdiction, didn't know anything about it. I mean, that was pretty incredible. But, you know, agriculture came together pretty quickly, got an agreement to uh, go ahead and, and have those funds restored, which they were. And so, you know, I view that as a major accomplishment. But that's just one of many battles we'll fight over the government levels of subsidy uh, for crop insurance. So bonus depreciation was approved. Section 179 is approved. But some had hinted on the Hill that there this might just be the precursor to a broader piece of tax reform that might come through the Congress. From agriculture's perspective, what's on the table left that you'd like to see in tax reform? There's really two main areas for agriculture that are critically important, and that is capital gains taxes, uh, what those rates are, what the provisions are, and then uh, the estate tax or the death tax. Those two issues disproportionately impact agriculture. As a small business, it's really asset-intensive. I think from our standpoint, those will be two key areas that we'll be just honing in on as as tax reform moves forward. Tax reform is going to be very complicated. Uh, It's going to be very contentious. You know, at the end of the day, we have to be sure that whatever comes out, if you get a final tax reform package, is something that is beneficial for U.S. agriculture. Biodiesel didn't get the long-term inclusion in that tax reform package of last year. Some feel like it's a setting duck. I think each of these individual little credits, I say little, they're not little to the people who who, who depend on them, but they are things that can be carved out very easily, and that makes it very difficult sometimes to maintain it. I think everything is a target, to be perfectly honest, given the budget uh, 
situation we have in this country in general, uh, given the uh, divisive nature of the Congress and differing attitudes about the government's role in the economy and with subsidies and credits, you know, all of these will always be a target. And even those that become permanent, they're only permanent until and unless Congress decides to make them not so. And so we have to be on guard the entire time. Vermont has approved labeling laws for food that contain ingredients that came from genetically modified crops. Bob, that is their right to do that, but there is concern across the country that 50 states would have 50 different laws set toward the labeling of food. This was not included as a rider in a part of the 15 appropriations package. How important is it for 2016? Well, it, it's very important. You know, we've had some indication that, well, this will be an issue front center early. And I think there's a pretty broad awareness that it does need to be resolved. The inefficiencies and cost that are going to be put upon our food production and distribution system, and, you know, that'll primarily hit the manufacturers initially, but at the end of the day, it's going to hit all consumers. And that's just going to be an additional uh, inefficient burden in terms of cost being put on consumers, not to mention the confusion that it's going to create. Hopefully we can get this fixed early in, the, in 2016 uh, by the Congress. We came close in getting a provision put into the last omnibus to fix it, but we didn't at the end of the day. But there is a strong awareness that this issue needs to be fixed, and you can't have state-by-state state, uh, labeling regulations given the national nature of our food system. Bob, is this a debate about the safety of those food products? No, it's more of a philosophical debate for you know those who just don't like the use of that technology. And frankly, most of these groups don't like the use of anything relative to modern production agriculture. This isn't a debate about the safety. There is absolutely no proof, no instances of any harm coming from biotech products in food. And so it's really not about food safety. The opponents have tried to now couch it in terms of consumer choice. Okay, fine. Consumers can have choices. Those Entities that want to produce food and have a voluntary non-GMO label put on it, give the consumers their choice, but don't make the, the labeling mandatory. Uh, I think that's the real debate right now is what does consumer choice mean? American Farm Bureau was the first to stand up uh, with regard to the Environmental Protection Agency's new definition of waters of the U.S., what did 2015 provide you, and now that 2016 is here, is there another legislative attempt at WOTUS, or is this now left to the courtrooms? Well, uh, we will continue to fight on both fronts. We have to. Uh, the correct solution to this is to get a legislative solution that basically tells EPA you were wrong. Uh, go back. You don't have as much authority as you think you have under the Clean Water Act and write a rule, uh, which the intent of which was to, you know, bring more clarity and, and simplicity into the regulatory structure of the Clean Water Act. That is the correct way to handle it. But it's getting difficult to get Congress to move. We thought we had some riders that were going to accomplish that in 2015. We, once again, became very close to getting that done. But, uh, at the very end, those riders were rejected. And 2016, I think, will will be another opportunity, and this is another issue that you know leaders in Congress have said will be teed up uh, early in 2016. The litigation route, the policy litigation route on this, uh, is long, difficult, and expensive. Uh, but having said that, 
uh, if that's the path we need to go, we are fully engaged. Uh, we have the financial resources to move forward, and we intend to take this all the way to the Supreme Court if necessary. And so at the end of the day, it may be the Supreme Court that has to rein in EPA and say, you do have limits to your authority under the Clean Water Act. Uh, the previous two rulings, they were not clear enough, in my opinion, or in others' opinions, uh, to give EPA proper direction, and maybe this time they will. Initially, in some of the rulings we've had, both for the injunctive relief that we sought and also some of the comments and some of the rulings that have been made where the judges indicated that uh, we had compelling arguments, and one ruling even said we were likely to prevail. And so that gives us hope that the, that the litigation process will uh, bear fruit, but it's going to be long and hard and expensive. But why is this such a big issue for farmers and ranchers in the country? Because this, in essence, the way the rule is structured for waters of the U.S. by the EPA gives them regulatory authority and control over anywhere water runs. Well, farmers and ranchers own the land that's used for production in this country, and having EPA looking over your shoulder, having the uncertainty of not even knowing if something on your land is jurisdictional or not, and the EPA having the flexibility to selectively enforce the rule and come in if there's a certain area that they don't like what farmers are doing, well, they start applying the law. But they won't come to every farm and tell farmers what they're, you know, which aspects are jurisdictional or which are not. And then you have the added burden of the citizen suits provisions in the law, which basically says that activist groups can use the law, can go to EPA and say you are not enforcing the law and file suit. And then EPA settles with these groups in a manner that generally is to the detriment of the property owner. So this just gets to the excessive nature of government control over private property. And Water Quality Clean Water Act was never intended to do that. Water quality efforts work best when they're conservation-oriented. Farmers and ranchers do a good job where there's an incentive-based approach and you know, our record is pretty dadgum good uh, with respect to water quality and the improvement thereof in this country, and yet EPA and uh, this particular uh, administration wants to come in and dictate everything we do on our land, and that's not going to work. Do you think that there are bigger water nutrient battles ahead? I think they're going to be constant. I don't know. I don't know if you could find one bigger than this, given the scope of authority that EPA is seeking into the waters of the U.S., Frankly, if this would ultimately uh, be the law of the land and remain in place, which we hope it won't, I think it gives EPA basically all the authority it ever wanted to control whatever it wants to do uh, with respect to water quality uh, on, uh, on farmland, but not just on farmland, on all private property. So I don't know how you could get much bigger than that. So many years ago, what were your thoughts and reasoning of why you wanted to be the president of the American Farm Bureau? Uh, on some days, I've asked myself the same question. Uh, but the reality is, is that I was uh, serving in a Farm Bureau leadership position as president of the State Farm Bureau. I was serving on the AFBF board. And I just thought there were some things that uh, needed attention at the national level. I thought I could offer some solutions. And then I did that, and uh, the delegates decided to elect me. And, of course, that placed a great deal of responsibility uh, on myself to uh, move forward with solutions, which I think we did. You know, I think the organization is in better shape. But, you know, anytime someone tries to do a retrospective and talk about the accomplishments of the person, I get a, a kind of a weird feeling because there is nothing that was accomplished in this entire 16 years of service that didn't involve the hard efforts of tens and maybe hundreds of people to make it happen. So it's never about one person. 
But uh, the reason was just simply I'm one of these farmers that likes to make things better, and I thought uh, you know there was an opportunity to make some things better uh, if uh, the delegates would give me the opportunity to lead the organization. You and the organization have been praised for working with both sides of the aisle, both sides of the capital, representing all of agriculture, farmers and ranchers alike from all of the states. Well, I think that's essential. We were never designed to be partisan. We were designed to represent all of American agriculture, not just parts of it. And the only way you can do that in a government that has two parties and control changes from time to time between the Congress and the administration, you have to work with whoever shows up. And that means you work across party lines. Many of the best solutions, I think, over the years that have come into place for agriculture have been bipartisan in nature. For a lot of country's history, the two agriculture committees, the House and the Senate, worked in a very bipartisan fashion. It's only been recently that, you know, there's been a little more partisanship involved than uh, what there used to be. So, you know, agriculture is important no matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican. And frankly, it's important no matter whether you're a liberal or a conservative. Because what we do to provide food, fiber, and fuel for uh, this country and a big chunk of the rest of the world is critical, and it will remain critical in the future. When you were handed the reins of the Farm Bureau presidency, there was an office in Parkridge, Illinois, and there was an office in Washington, D.C. Now they're at the same address. How important was that move? Well, I think it was very important. It allowed us to uh, be more efficient, be more focused. Uh, many of our members, uh, even in 2000, when I came on board, really thought the headquarters was in Washington, D.C., because they never traveled to Park Ridge, Illinois, to see the headquarters. They would always travel to Washington to engage with their members of Congress and come by and see the legislative office we had there. So there was even some of our own members that were surprised that, uh, you know, all of a sudden we were naming the Washington office our headquarters because they thought that had always been the case. But that move allowed us to be much more focused and the staff to be much more integrated. Uh, I think it has made us much more effective. And given today's ability to communicate, uh, physical location, uh, you know, while you can say it's not important, as important as it once was, when you're in the policy world and you're working within Washington, D.C., having that physical pre- presence there, I believe, is important. And I think it's serving us well. Is that something you think other commodity organizations should take a look at? Well, I think some have and some are. You know, everybody has their history and their culture and their organizations, but it really gets down to a focus of resources. You know, there was a time where the legislative aspects was, were maybe, uh, you know, a smaller part of what you do as an organization in the days when you had, where you had, you know, mass communication and information flow to get out to your members, uh, where you had a lot of, uh, membership programs and those kind of things where, you know, your location in the middle of the country may have made more sense. But with today's communication, you can handle those functions, uh, you know, pretty well wherever you are. But having the people, because regardless of what we say, the legislative legislative process is still a people business. Uh, having your people in Washington, D.C. and focus on the work there and interacting with the government officials and elected leaders on a face-to-face basis is, is very important. Whether responding to legislative opportunities or challenges or regulatory opportunities or challenges, Bob, what does agriculture and the rural voice, what do you see that it will need to do or continue to do to be effective in Washington? Well, it needs to continue doing what I think we've started uh, doing more of uh, in my tenure, uh, 
uh, across all of agriculture, and I think it's exemplified by what the U.S. Farmers and Ranchers Alliance is doing, where, you know, we're realizing that we have to reach out and communicate and have a uh, omnipresent voice, a, a much stronger voice, uh, and figure out a way to connect better with consumers and society. I mean, I think that is going to be one of the more difficult things that we're going to have to do, and we're going to have to do it better than we're doing it now to be successful, because it's, it's too easy uh, in the world we live in today where people really don't know anything about agriculture, they don't know where their food comes from, they don't know how it's produced. It's really easy for them to get messages from other groups who have philosophical agendas or other kind of agendas that are anti-agriculture uh, to, you know, to, to gain traction. And so we're going to have to do a better job of inoculating, if you will, society and consumers uh, against what we would consider to be pretty much misinformation with the realities of what we do in agriculture. And at the same time, that means we're going to have to be more open and transparent about what we do. And that's hard for farmers and ranchers. Uh, you know, we, we're generally private people. We think we're doing a good job on our farms and ranches. We're working hard. We don't really want to spend the time communicating, but given the decreasing numbers of those of us actively involved in, in farming and ranching, we have to do a better job of that. So that may be one of the bigger challenges that we face uh, for the future. Bob, I would just ask if you might preview some of the work that will happen during your upcoming convention in Orlando. Well, I think it will be an exciting convention. We've changed some things uh, in terms of our trade show, in terms of our convention format to hopefully allow people to be more engaged and you know have a more enjoyable experience. Of course, our business uh, delegate session where we uh, look at our policy positions, we'll go through the, the same kind of process we normally do. I'm not sure that we have a lot of hot-button issues that we don't have good policy on, but that doesn't mean there won't be something that will pop up or there will be some attempts to sort of refine some of those policy positions that we have. So I expect our usual vigorous debate, and we'll work through that. And underlying all of that will be the political and election process we have internally uh, to see who replaces me and and, uh, who serves as uh, vice president. So that will uh, create a little more excitement than is normal. This is the first time there's been an open seat election for president for 30 years in the organization. So it doesn't happen very often, and uh, I already have a sense that there's going to be a lot of people watching that process at the convention. The gavel will pass, and what organization will that new president inherit? What are the circumstances that they will take over? Well, I always said that, you know, it's much like a farmer. You always want to take the farm and and leave it in better shape for those that follow you. I've always had that same philosophy with American Farm Bureau Federation, and my goal was to leave it better than I found it, so uh, there's a, uh, a better foundation for those who come after to build upon and make it even better. We have an outstanding operational platform. Uh, we have great uh, staff leadership. Our executive vice president, Juliana Potts, is leading a great team of senior managers. We've put in some internal uh, sort of operational processes that allow us to be more focused, more efficient with resources. So I think the operating platform's in really good shape, and whoever comes in, I hope they appreciate that. And at the same time, I hope they uh, move forward and make it even better than it is. Folks over at the Department of Agriculture had some accolades for you in your work and your tenure as Farm Bureau President. Well, I tell you what, I have spent a lot of time working with those in USDA from the time I came on board. Uh, and uh, currently, uh, Secretary Vilsack and I have an outstanding relationship. Uh, we don't always agree, but we always talk. It's been a great relationship. And that's Secretary Harden and, and then all the individuals that you work with over the course of time, you know, career people whether they're in ARS, FAS, ERS, all the acronyms that are there, 
you work with all those people over the years, and you get to know some of them pretty well. But you know, USDA is a is a huge a, a huge agency, a huge department uh, in terms of number of people and in terms of the scope of its responsibilities. And you know, given what we're engaged in as an organization, it just makes sense that you know we're going to be overlapping uh, in, in in almost. Probably all the areas, I guess, that USDA deals in, rural development, nutrition, you know, the list goes on. And we've always had a very open relationship with USDA. And like I said, this administration, and Secretary Bill Sack, uh, it's been as good as it's ever been. So what are you going to do with all the spare time you'll have now? <laughs> you know, I wish I had a dollar for every time people have been asking me that question. My nature is not to have a lot of spare time. I will be doing something. And I'm not quite sure what that something is. There's a long list that's growing. There's a lot of people that have some ideas about things I ought to be doing. But, you know, I, uh, I'm going to close out things, have a little transition period of a couple of weeks, and, you know, and then see what comes next. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. Bob Stallman, we want to thank you for spending time with us again here on AgriPulse Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and, sir, you have the last word. Well, this 16 years has been a fantastic experience. This rubber boot-wearing, shovel-carrying young farmer 35 years ago could never have imagined that I could have had the opportunities and privileges and and, uh, the ability to get to know farmers and ranchers all across this great country and sometimes in many other parts of the world. So I couldn't ask for anything uh, better. Uh, It's time now for someone else to take up the mantle of leadership. AgriPulse salutes Bob Stallman for his tireless service to the agriculture industry and for being our guest this week on Open Bike. AgriPulse Open Bike is brought to you by NCIS, the crop insurance industry. NCIS provides the primary safety net for millions of acres of cropland and hundreds of commodities across the U.S., enabling farmers to supply our country with food and fiber year after year. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Alley.